So let's pray. Lord God, we just ask that you would be pleased to even help us in this hour with the things that we consider from your word. God, we know that your word is not like any other word. And the things that it reveals are oft not what we would expect. And we just pray that you would continue to keep us as those who um, humbly and with teachable hearts attend to your word and that you would be pleased uh, to teach us through it. Help us, Lord, in the things that we consider this morning to deepen our passion for uh, praying together with your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I was going to take up this morning what Doug has been uh, looking at, but he said, no, no, please, please, let me do it, let me do it. So we will leave, uh, leave that to him. And this morning, uh, you know, I get to, in the process of studying for the sermons that I preach, I, I get to in, uh, chase down all kinds of extra rabbit trails in the process of the study that don't necessarily get into the sermon. And so I'll take you on one of those this morning. And that, uh, if, you, if you will, open to Acts 16. So we'll be in Acts 16 both now and in the service. Um, but what I want to draw your attention to is uh, uh, three verses, and then, then we'll, we'll move on from there. In Acts chapter 16, verse 13, God's Word says this, And on the Sabbath we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. In Acts chapter 16, verse 16, it says this, And as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. In Acts 16, verse 25, it says, And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. What I want you to see in there is uh, an emphasis on prayer. An emphasis on praying together. Paul and Silas were, uh, we note this, and I want us to not miss this. We as the people of God are in some sense to pray without ceasing, right? And yet... Just because we do pray without ceasing, does that not mean we also set aside time to specifically, devotedly attend to prayer? Where, yeah, there's, there's a prayerful spirit and there's a regular pleas and interaction with God throughout the day, but there still also needs to be time of focused prayer, correct? So we pray without ceasing in one sense. We set aside time to directly, personally, privately seek the Lord, even as Jesus says in Matthew 5 and 6, where he's talking about go to the inner room and, and, and pray and not, not to be seen by others. 
But the scriptures here are also indicating uh, something very significant, that beyond a, a general spirit and tone and attitude of prayerfulness that pervades our lives, and a personal time of committed prayer, that there is a time of God's people coming together for prayer. And when we begin to, to, to see that concept, by, tw twice here, uh, Paul goes to a place of prayer. A place of prayer. And remember, it says in the scriptures, um, my house, God says, is to be a house of prayer. So I want us to begin to get a, get a strong sense of this idea. Now, early on, there can be some confusing ideas. So if, if you turned with me briefly to 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 32 and following, you would see, you'll see something. Now, this is in the initial institution of the Old Testament temple built by Solomon. And it says... Uh, these kinds of things uh, uh, throughout this section. This is beginning in verse 12 of Second Chronicles 6. This is Solomon's dedication of the temple. And so he, he's calling out to God and he's praying to God. And one of the things that you see uh, throughout this is that he's telling God that God as people, um, for example, go with me to verse 19. Uh, I'll begin in verse 18 of 2 Chronicles 6. But God, will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Then he says, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord, and listen to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayers that your servants offer toward this place. And he carries on. And, and what he's pleading there is, in this Old Testament sense, he's saying, yeah, th 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 God, we want you to hear our prayers, but we're also asking that this place be a place where when we come here, you listen and you hear it. Now, this uh, should play into kind of, look and look what it says in... Uh, uh, Chapter 7, 2 Chronicles 7, verse 15, before we jump back to the New Testament. God is now replying to Solomon and his pleas, and he even set, goes on and says, look, even if they can't come here, if they happen to be uh, taken captive and they're in other lands, if they at least face this direction and pray towards this house. Now, why would you think, why would they do that? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be praying to... God in heaven. Did not Jesus pray, our Father who art in heaven? So what was the significance of that house? And it says this in chapter 7, verse 15. Now, my eyes 
will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there for all time. So what I want us to, to, to begin to get a little bit of a snapshot in our mind is at times things are more complicated than we necessarily understand. You know, and, and we're going to look at this maybe also a little bit in, in the service. Um, there is, as he said, the highest heavens cannot contain God. Correct? And yet, God is going to dwell in this house. God certainly can hear from heaven. And yet, God says, I will open my ears and be attentive to prayers that are made in this place. God would, though God is in heaven and omnipresent, that he's everywhere, he would also manifest his glory specifically at times in the temple. There were times that it would be, uh, it would descend on the temple and it would seem like it was burning. It's even spoken that he would manifest himself even greater in the mercy seat above the ark to which in the Holy of Holies they would come in once a year. So uh, what we've got to understand is sometimes things get uh, too big for our brain. And one of the mistakes that we make is we take those things that are too big for our brain and we say, okay, I acknowledge that. But then when the scripture says something different, we start to say, now that can't be. But that can be. What it says can be. So listen, there is a sense in which God is omnipresent, present everywhere. There is a more, uh, more extraordinarily manifest sense in which God is in heaven, right? And though he is everywhere on the earth, even at that time in the old covenant, he indicated that he would manifest himself, show himself, engage himself uniquely and powerfully in that temple in a way that he did not in other places. Now, it's never in a way that he could not in other places. But God says, you pray towards this place. So what would people do when they had desperate, desperate prayers like Hannah? Well, you go ahead and you, and you pilgrim, pilgrimage there with your husband and you go to the temple and you cry out to the Lord that he will hear you in that place. In John chapter 4, Jesus is dealing with the woman at the well who is a Samaritan woman. And in John chapter 4, verse 20, she questions Jesus. She says this, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you, now when she says you in verse 20, that means you the Jews, not you Jesus, because you is in the plural there. You say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. 
So he's, she, she's realizing Jesus is a prophet. She didn't quite yet understand he was the Messiah. And so she asks him this burning question, which is the location where we draw near to God? Is it the mountain, which is our Samaritan custom, or is it Jerusalem, which is the Jewish practice? Which one is it? Now, with regard to the Old Covenant, it's quite clear the Jews were correct under the Old Covenant. And Jesus even makes that clear in verse 21. He says to her, woman, believe me, uh, first of all, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. So we worship we, what we know. Salvation is from the Jews. Basically, he's saying, if you want to go backwards from now, the Jews were right. It was at Jerusalem. This was the place that they had to come multiple times in a year, no matter where they lived. This was the place they gathered uh, for Pentecost. This is the place they gathered for uh, Passover. This is the place they gathered for the Feast of Tabernacles. The, and this was the place where God had promised, my eye will be and my ear will be open to your cries in this place. But then what does Jesus do? He says the time is coming and is now here where not only were your people wrong who are doing it on the mountain, but it's not as if God could not possibly see and accept their worship on the mountain. But that was not the place that he had given promise to. But that promise that had been set upon Jerusalem was coming to its earthly covenantal end. And Jesus says, it's not going to be on this mountain, nor in Jerusalem, verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him god is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth so what is jesus saying it is no longer about location do you see that not about the location. But what I don't want us to miss in here is, is there, there is still something bound up in here. This was, that place was a house of prayer. That's where people would come together. As I read through the rest of that and what Jesus is saying there, he says, look, the true worshipers will worship. That, again, all that phrasing is the true worshipers is in the plural. So the sense is, though it is no, no longer based on a location, it still has an emphasis on congregation. Do you follow what I'm saying? It still has an emphasis on God's people coming together to pray. Now listen, 
there is, there is a, a special sense, listen, for uh, is not Jesus the Son of God? So he is also divine. He is also omnipresent, present everywhere. Yes? And yet when he says to the disciples, indeed that is a promise passed on to us, lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age? Is the answer not, well, duh, because you're omnipresent? Or do we understand that there is a sense in which He is everywhere? There is a greater sense in which He is with His people wherever they are, right? Even if it is John exiled to the Isle of Patmos by himself, is the Lord with him? And the Lord is with him in a way that the Lord was not with Herod or Pontius Pilate, right? And I want us to get this as well. There is also a sense in which the Lord is with us. When we are gathered together, which again takes it to a different level. The, even when you look at the way that it was structured, the, the temple under the old covenant, it had these different courts, as, as you would know. You would come to a courtyard that was the Gentiles' court, and they were supposed to stop there. And then you could go uh, further, and there's the women's court, and that's for Jewish women. And then you can go further, and that's for uh, the Jews in general. You go further, that's exclusively for the Levites. You go further, that's exclusively for the priests. You go further, that's exclusively for the high priest. <laughs> and so you, 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 you had these degrees in which or seeming proximities to the presence of God. Now remember, God is everywhere present. But then the scriptures will say of Cain when he was sent out of the area that uh, he went out from the presence of God. Well, how could you go out of an omnipresence? See, you can't theologically, but there, were, there was a region in which God would fellowship with Adam and with his people, and, and there was a, an express presence of God there that was not where Cain was being sent off. The same thing David would say when he would, uh, or Hezekiah would say when he would receive a letter from Sennacherib, he would go and lay that letter in the presence of the Lord. What do you mean go? The Lord's everywhere. You could drop right where you're at and lay it there. Well, no, he was going to take it to the temple and meet the priest and lay it there because there is an extraordinary presence. And so what I want us to begin to see is, and I, and I think that there is, something we ought not miss about this, there is always surely power in prayer. And there is the presence of God with His people when they pray. But it seems, as I search the Scriptures, that there is a greater degree of potency when God's people pray together. There is a greater potency or expression of God's presence when God's 
people gather together. And I want, to, I want you to begin to, uh, to unpack this uh, with you, looking at a few different verses. Um, first of all, uh, why, don't you, why don't you go with me over to, um, let's, let's look through Acts a bit. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, I want to show you a, a, a pattern that we ought to, and must not lose. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it says this, all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women. And so the early church was not, uh, Christians are not just a praying people. They are a people who come together to pray. And, and it is, it, the scriptures unfold that as a very significant thing. Look with me what it says in uh, Acts chapter 4. If you remember, in Acts chapter 4, they came uh, having been threatened about not to teach in the name of Jesus and the things that they would face. And remember, uh, let me turn there briefly. In Acts chapter 4, They basically uh, are praying, uh, uh, Sovereign Lord, you have heard the threats that they have made against us. I mean, almost there. Yes. So I want to be in chapter 4 towards the end. Um, chapter 4, verse 31. Here, verse 20. Look at what I'm reading from... Verse 24, um, having been threatened in verse 23, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. I mean, that's, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? They lifted their voices together for God. And one of the reasons I'm urging this is because it becomes commonplace uh, for us to take certain truths for granted. And I don't want us to take certain truths for granted. And, and it can become common that a per, when, when we're gathered together for prayer and someone is praying, that um, someone else is not engaged with that prayer. Maybe even they're thinking, I might pray next and, and possibly rehearsing in their mind what they're, what they're going to pray and how they're going to say it. Do we have to rehearse? Does it matter the beauty and eloquence of our words? Those things are not significant. We want to, the idea of praying together has us engaged. We, we obviously can't somehow mentally sync up and all of a sudden we start praying the same words at the same time. I mean, I'm not aware of that easily happening. But someone can pray and we can with united heart, absolutely be engaged in that prayer with them. And so, what I'm, I'm going to keep reading here in this passage. It says, And they said together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth, the sea and everything that is in it, and spoke through David, so on. They speak about the threats that are coming to them. Verse 28, the confidence in God's sovereignty to do whatever your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants 
to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And I just want to note something here. In this context, they have come together. And they are not necessarily in the temple in Jerusalem. They are not necessarily on the mountain in Samaria. They have come together. But as they've come together, that place has become a place of prayer. And in the gathered people of God, in the place of prayer, we see the expression of God's presence and potency. Because look what it says in verse... 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken. Okay, what was not shaken? Every other place says very clearly the place where they were was shaken. And not only that, we, we see something significant. Those who had gathered to pray and gathered to plead for that cause, not only did they ha- did God, was God pleased to give them a demonstration of His presence. Which, note this, because He did that, we don't need this place to shake. We can know with full confidence that when we gather and we pray, that He is with us with a powerful presence. Further, the, the answer to that prayer was what? That you grant us boldness to speak. It says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. So, listen, there, there is a demonstrated uh, uh, presence of God among the gathered body of Christ when they pray, and there is a powerful spirit working in the hearts and lives of God's people as they gather together and pray. I mean, these are not small things. Now listen, some may say then, well, why then on our uh, midweek Bible study is there big segment of time committed to uh, Bible study and then the prayer is much less? And I say, if the requests are extensive, the prayer time will be longer. If more people are, are, are moved to pray, the prayer time will be longer. But don't start making too big a fuss before you read chapter 4 again and realize that this prayer that God was pleased to attend with a demonstration of His presence and a working of His power, how long was that prayer? It seems less than 60 seconds. And so, remember, it, it, it's not so much the time and the quantity. It's not so much that somehow if we just stay together long enough that we can force God to do this or to do that. That's not it. We have the confidence that when we come together in the name of Christ to seek God in prayer, there is a special presence of God among His people. And there is, in the sovereign grace of God, a glorious working of God by the Spirit in the lives of God's people who gather in prayer. We cannot, uh, ought not, 
take this lightly. Again, Acts chapter 13, when the church had been doing well in Antioch, it was during a time of worshiping the Lord and fasting, Acts 13, 2, which was a gathered group, worshiping together and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called him. God's unique directing, at times God's unique working within the context of the body, oft expresses itself when we come together in His name in committed prayer and worship. And it says there, of course, in verse 3 of Acts 13, then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. In Acts 12, Peter was arrested. James had already been arrested and then killed. And so when Peter was arrested, you can imagine that the, the believers, their concern. So what do the believers do? Well, what, sometimes what people can do is run for the hills. But that's not going to necessarily bring the necessary effect. What the church did, look in me, with me in Acts chapter uh, 12, verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Were they probably praying personally and individually as well? Sure, but not exclusively. They actually were part of a culture that was so oft committed to gathering such that when God will deliver him from the prison in the middle of the night, look what it says in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, when he realized this, that it wasn't a dream or vision. He's actually in the street outside the prison, no longer bound up. What did he do? It says, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, John Mark, where many were gathered together and what? Were praying. Why? Why are they gathered together and praying? I mean, it's clearly past the middle of the night. Can't they just dismiss everybody to go to their homes, get some rest, pray on your own bed, and we'll meet up when we have opportunity? Surely they could. Does God hear our prayers when we're on our beds? Yes, indeed. The psalmist speaks of crying out to God from his bed in the watches of the night. But these things are not recorded by accident. They're recorded for us to read and take note of them. And there seems to be a sense in which the early church grasped that when we as a church gather together in earnest prayer, that there is something that God does. Now what's interesting is we know they were gathered together to pray for Peter. The shocking thing is God answered their prayers. And Peter shows up at the house and knocks on the door. And Rhoda 
sees it, hears, it, hears him and goes in and says, Peter's here. And what do they think? There ain't no way he's here. There ain't no way. That's, that's a ghost. Uh, so uh, what I love about that is, so listen, was the power, a lot of our dear brothers who, who are praying around there these days could, could get some help from this, was the effectiveness rooted in the f- presumption of the people? Well, we're praying and we're all gathered together and we're in agreement, so God has to do it. That's it. No. So uh, are they in their humanity that when God did mightily answer their prayer, they didn't even believe it. Nah, that didn't didn't happen. But what I don't want us to miss is what an extraordinary answer to prayer. I mean, as I'm reading through and I read Acts chapter 4, what an extraordinary answer to prayer. A visible, experiential answer to prayer. Then we come to chapter 12. Again, they're gathered. What an extraordinary, miraculous, powerful answer to prayer. So why don't God's people commit to and value and understand that richness of of gathered prayer? Indeed, it says this in Jude chapter 1 verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Building yourselves up, that is plural, and praying in the Spirit. There is something extraordinary when we come together. It's it's a contending for the faith once for all delivered for the saints. It's a building one another up in the most holy faith. And it's a praying unitedly in the Spirit that accomplishes great and powerful things. Uh, One of the... challenges and struggles and expectations even in first corinthians chapter 14 though it's primarily that chapter is giving corrections regarding um, abuses of the gift of tongues expressions of tongues that were completely not understandable and therefore were serving no good in the church but woven into that especially in the excuses some would make yeah you don't know what i'm saying but i'm praying you don't know what I'm saying, but I'm, I'm, I'm thanking God. Well, this is what is spoken into that passage there, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 16 and 17. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not built up. Listen, the scriptures are saying here that when we gather and when we pray, when we express our confidence in God, our dependence upon God, when we cry out to God to help, to move, to act, that it has, and when we praise Him for who He is and what He's done, it has an effect of building one another up. It's part of God's design in prayer. We, I think, sometimes think of prayer as being, and it is, God that we're speaking to. 
but as we're speaking to God and as we're uh, uh, acknowledging to Him His excellence and His glories, God's people's hearts are being enlarged and uplifted by those things. And, and we just see the regularity of this happening when Paul is leaving the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 36. After he finished saying all these things to them, he knelt down and prayed with them all. You know, the, the, these, were not, these are not just rote religious activities. This, we're, we're believers, so this is what we do. We've got to always end with prayer. No, they did this because they understand when God's people gather together and pray, there is significance. And it expresses our absolute dependence. Um, further in Romans 15, for example, God's word says this. Verse 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We come together with one voice. Psalm 34 verse 3 says this, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. And so, the, uh, one more regarding this. It says this in Ephesians 3, verse uh, 20, 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly. I like the way the ESV has triplicated, triplicated those words. Far more abundantly. It just keeps going Bigger and bigger, doesn't it? And then to, to show the expression of it, then all we can ask or think according to the power at work within us. Listen. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations and forever and ever. Oh, it's good for us to cry out to God and ask Him things individually. But there is something rich about one voice, about amens, about together God's people collectively with a confidence, not in what necessarily God will do. We're confident that God will do what is most wise. God will fulfill His purpose and plans. We're confident that whatever we ask, He's able it, it, it's, it's within his ability if it is in accord with his will. But we don't want it if it's not in accord with his will. But as we, as we come collectively together, it brings that wonderful sense of what we ask, the power that is at work within us. Sometimes we, uh, one, one of the modern dangers that we face in a democratic nation with rampant individualism. We don't understand the, the, the richness of, of community, of fellowship, of koinonia, of assembly, of body. 
things of which we are unpacking on Tuesday evenings, and we'll continue to unpack those things. Oh, good. I had wanted to share specifically uh, a couple of ver- the, those verses I mentioned earlier, so let me do that for clarification. It was Genesis 4.16 that, that it, the Scripture said, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. We would say, but that's theologically inaccurate. Well, be careful. If you're going to call the Bible theologically inaccurate, you're kind of rubbing up against the wrong direction. Maybe your theology of omnipresence does not recognize God's distinctive purposes and extraordinary manifestations of His presence in certain places, though He is in some sense omnipresent. So his omnipresence is a little more complex than we think of it. It says again, 1 Samuel 1 verse 2, Hannah did not go up after the child was born, said this to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him up so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Wait a second, Hannah. He's already in the presence of the Lord, as is everybody Even everybody who's in Sheol, Hades and Sheol lie open and bare before him, right? But there was a unique sense in which God had had set his experiential, demonstrative, manifest presence at the temple that wasn't other places. And in that similar sense, not Jerusalem, not the mountain in Samaria, Not even necessarily when I'm off alone, but when God's people come together in the name of Christ and collectively cry out to Him, there is a glorious expression of God's power and God's promises and God's presence that is among His people. Now, I'm uh, running out of time, but I'll I'll simply uh, draw your attention to it in these ways. We saw that promise that went uh, for the house of God that was in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles. Remember that? Then Jesus says this um, as as we move forward. He says this, and I'm going to just say it, uh, read it out of um, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and following. As you come to Him, living stones... Rejected by men, but in the sight of uh, a living stone. Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Look at verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are what? Being built into a spiritual house. So when one stone is there, is that a house? But you put the stones together, and what do you have? A spiritual house in which it says, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. That's why it says in verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So so here's the sense of it. Uh, As living stones, when we, the living stones, come together in the name of of the chosen and precious stone, Jesus Christ, we are a living house, a spiritual house. It's no longer the the temple or house of prayer that was in Jerusalem where God's special 
presence with his people to hear them, to work among them, which is why I think I don't want us to miss this. When we, as living stones, come together, we form a spiritual house. We become a house of prayer. And it is in that collective, congregational environment as the body in which Christ is the head where there is great power, great presence, great growth, great conviction, great change, which is why God's people must come together. And not just by duty, with a sense of delight, to where they, they are knowing this, we are coming together that we will draw near to God. And as we do so, He draws near to us. What a rich confidence we have. We'll take more of this up on Tuesday evening. Let me pray. Lord, just um, an amazing thing that your word reveals to us, just helping us to understand that though you are God who inhabits the heavens and all of earth, that you are in all places at all times and nothing is hidden from you and nothing is apart from your sight, Yet nonetheless, you have been pleased to demonstrate your presence, to manifest your power, to work by your spirit in certain places in unique ways. And Lord, we recognize as we look at the scriptures that today it is not based on location or a particular building or place, but it is in whatever place your people come together in your name, that we form a spiritual house in which you make yourself known, in which you work your great work, and we pray that you would continue to do so among us, and we plead with you, O oh God, for so many of our sister churches who are waiting on the permission from their states, many who are struggling with great grief now, um, two and a half months without being able to gather together. Oh God, open that door for them soon that they might be able to enjoy that richness of fellowship and that remarkable expression of your presence with your people as we sing your praises, as we pray and call out to your name, as we exalt our great and holy God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.